You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you should find one in the seat back in front of you or at the end of your row. Uh, We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you open so that you are seeing it for yourself because that's where the power is. Amen? We believe that God has spoken. We believe that He has written a book, and we believe that it is timeless, living, and active. And so we are going to look at God's Word today. We're going to spend some extended time doing that because we value it, we treasure it. So you're opening your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. We're getting into the next chapter of the book of Mark as we continue on in our series, The Good News, uh, where our series vision is that we would realize that now is the time to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now is the time to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so I As you're turning there, I want you to imagine yourself uh, at a place out in public, somewhere in our community, some place that you would normally go that has a fair amount of people in it, maybe 10 or more people. So it could be your job, uh, it could be the park, it it could be the public library or, or your school, uh, it, it could be the grocery store or, or goods or a restaurant that you frequent. Just get that place in your mind, one place, and when it comes to your mind, uh, envision people walking around there. Envision the, the people that you see, and maybe, maybe you pause and you talk to them for a couple of minutes. Maybe you're an introvert, so you don't talk to anyone. Maybe some of them look like people who would feel incredibly uncomfortable to talk to because they, they're pretty scary. Or, or maybe um, you don't talk to them because you just don't see things through the same lens and you know that that's a thing. And so why, why start a conversation that you know you're going to regret later? Um, get those people in your head. Get that scene in your head. Now, with that scene in your head, understand this. That st- statistically speaking, in our county, if there are 10 people in that place with you, five to seven of them are likely not followers of Jesus Christ. Five to seven of them. By that I mean they they do not have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. According to bestplaces.net, 49.9% of Lancaster County identifies as religious. And, And... While that number is mostly Christian, it includes Jews, Muslims, Eastern faiths, anyone who would self-identify as a Christian without really knowing what that means. And so I'm actually being fairly generous when I say five to seven out of ten of those people in that place with you are not following Jesus Christ. Now I want you to just digest for that for a moment what that means. Just think about what this means from Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. According to the Scriptures, according to the Apostle Paul, they are dead in the trespasses and sins in which they walk. It means that they are following the course of this world. It means they're following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. It means that they are living out the 
spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. They're following the course of the demons. They're bent on carrying out the passions of the flesh, the desires in the bodies of, the, of their body and their mind. They're by nature then children of wrath, God's wrath. Like the rest of mankind. And don't forget, without Christ, every single one of us was there too. I was there. You were there. And, and as Paul puts it in Colossians, they, they, they are trapped. They're enslaved. They're citizens of the domain of darkness. Those people that you see on a regular basis, when you go out in public, those five to seven out of ten of them, without the intervening grace of Jesus, will spend all of eternity in hell. With Satan and his demons, weeping and gnashing their teeth at our Lord. So how do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? I mean, in the depths of your heart, how do you respond to that? Are you, are you okay with that? Are you dismissive of this fact, assuming that, that they, they probably already heard the gospel before? We live in a pretty religious county, and so, you know, therefore, if they've already heard the gospel, they deserve what they have coming to them. Do you tend to make excuses for, for why they would be too hard for you to reach? Or why someone else might have a better opportunity. Somebody else would be better at this than you would. Do you tend to make excuses about how you just don't come across the right opportunity? Or, or that taking that opportunity would put you in jeopardy in some way with your job or with your relationships? What does it do in your heart to come face to face with the fact that the domain of darkness is ruining the lives of the people around you and keeping them from fully glorifying God by reflecting His image through living in relationship to Him? I know what it did in Jesus' heart. And today we're going to see very clearly how Jesus responds to all those who are dying in the domain of darkness. We're going to read about a guy in whose life the spiritual battle was totally evident and totally destructive. We're going to read about someone who was demon-possessed. And I want you to get this into your mind from the beginning, that while we may not always see overt demon possession on a regular basis, some of us interact with it more often than others, right? But while we may not always see it overtly, certainly not at the level that we're going to read in Mark chapter 5, the same domain of darkness is destroying people's lives in many of the same ways today. And what we are about to read is as evident demonic destruction is quietly at work in the lives of those five to seven people out of ten who you saw in that scenario earlier. And we, the church, have a responsibility. Because we ourselves were once following the course of this world. We ourselves were once following the prince of the power of the air. We have a responsibility because we have the good deposit of the gospel entrusted to us to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now is the time. And if Jesus can rescue the guy that we're about to read about from the domain of darkness, there is no one he can't get to. And so here's our big idea for today. It's in, it's in your notes. Jesus restores new life 
to those dying in the domain of darkness, tell everyone the good news. Jesus restores new life to those dying in the domain of darkness. Tell everyone the good news. These verses, uh, I'm sorry, your Bibles are open to Mark chapter 5. And, uh, and Mark is, is proving by, by recording the teaching and miracles of Jesus that, that Jesus Christ is not just another guy. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He's the promised, anointed Savior King. Remember, that's what Christ means. He deserves our response of dependence and devotion. And last week we saw Jesus rebuking the wind and the sea and they became calm. And the disciples realized this isn't just an ordinary guy. We've got to respond to him in the right way. And so they're greatly afraid and they ask this question to one another. uh, Who then is this? They're still in the process of trying to figure it out. Who then is this? And I would imagine that as they get off the boat and they step onto the shores, they're probably still processing what just happened. They're still probably thinking about this this big event that just went on. And they're about to get an answer to their question from a very unlikely source. A legion of demons who have known Jesus for thousands of years will answer that question in unison. This is the Son of the Most High God. And and Jesus will prove that identity by casting them out and restoring life to the man whose body they inhabit. Let's look at Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Read along with me in your Bibles. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave permission and the unclean spirits came out, of the, came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the, in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home 
to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Jesus restores new life to those dying in the domain of darkness. Tell everyone about him. Do you see it right there from the text? You see it? Not making it up. We preach the word here, right? And so these these verses divide pretty clearly between the the description of the exorcism in verses 1 to 13 and the description of the response to the exorcism in verses 14 to 20. And so that's how we're going to divide our sermon today. Uh, In the the exorcism section, we learn a lot about the domain of darkness. We, We see just how much the domain of darkness leads people to death. The domain of darkness leads people to death. And that might seem like a really obvious statement on the surface. Like, do we really need a whole other sermon about this? But how often do we see it as clearly as we do in this man's life? And how often do we forget when it's not made this overt for us? Jesus and his disciples step out of their boat right after this incident with the storm and they find themselves in the country of the Gerasenes. Now, now, the country of the Gerasenes is a primarily Gentile, non-Jewish area that's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee from where Jesus has been spending on all his time. It's in an area called the Decapolis. And uh, the, the Decapolis is, is beyond really Israel proper. Most of it is. Uh, and, and so Jesus is moving briefly beyond Galilee, beyond Israel, but he's not going to spend a lot of time there. He's just hinting really at at where the gospel is going to go after he ascends to heaven. And so we come to find that that this country has a disturbing welcome team as he approaches this guest. This is not a guy that Katie would put on the welcome team. The greeter that day is a demonized man who immediately comes running out of the tombs and falls at the feet of Jesus, yelling, What have you to do with me, Jesus? Now, before we get into Jesus' interaction with this greeter at the front door of this new place, uh, Mark wants us to know a little bit about the background of this man. He wants us to know the literal living hell that this guy is experiencing. He wants us to see the spiritual death that these demons have imposed upon him. And that's why Mark really emphasizes the place where they found this guy. He he repeats three times, did you notice it? Uh, That the guy was living among the tombs. Among the tombs. The setting of this encounter is the place of death. He is dead even while he is living. This is the same death that Paul describes in Ephesians 2 when he says that we were dead in our sin apart from Christ. We see in this man our incapability of saving ourselves from the domain of darkness. He shows us the helplessness of our spiritual state apart from the intervening work of Christ, a spiritual state that too often goes goes unrealized. And that experience of death is marked by four things in this man's life. I want you to see four things. Uh, First, isolation. Isolation. I said it already from verse 3. He lived among the tombs. But not only is there a strong death motif in that idea, practically speaking, the guy is also living where no one else lives. Literally where no one else is living. And these demons had 
made such a mess of this man's life that he was isolated from his family and his friends and his culture and any form of life-giving community. Understand, we are not made for isolation. When God created Adam, what did he say? He said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he created Eve. But one of the common tactics of the enemy is to isolate people, however he can do it. And so this could be the pornography addict or the drug abuser who retreats more and more into the shadows so that he can feed his addiction. This could be the materially poor person who, who feels shame over their status in life or maybe over the way they dress or their home or something like that. And so they, they pull away from people. This could be the, the self-centered person who just thinks that the rest of society is the problem and not them. And so they, they just kind of retreat into themselves and they don't want to deal with people anymore. And so they just ignore everyone. However they can do it, isolation is a primary tactic of the domain of darkness. Proverbs 18, verse 1, write that down. Proverbs 18, verse 1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. I think that describes this man's life pretty well. Sound judgment is way out the window at this point. The demons have been given total control of his mind and body, and it has led to his isolation, which only serves then to feed the cycle, right? And like I said before, his isolation was the experience of death. He is living among the tombs primarily because people don't know what to do with him. Look at verse 4. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he, he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. He, he has this great strength to break free from the physical chains that people would try to impose upon him, but that is only because he is completely held captive and controlled by the power of these demons. And that's the second thing we learn about the death that the domain of darkness brings. It is bondage. It is bondage. The inability to fulfill the purpose for which you were created because you are enslaved in sin. That's bondage. And this man was, was casting off the chains and shackles that the people of his town had put on him, but we can all agree that he's not experiencing true freedom, is he? Like, he's experiencing the stuff of nightmares. He's completely given over to the power of another. He's completely dominated and controlled by the domain of darkness in his life. And that's a tactic of the enemies, friends. The enemy makes people appear strong and unrestrained. While all the time he's holding them in bondage to sin. This world thinks that, that freedom is the casting off of all restraint, the ability to do what I want, when I want. But the Bible says that, that when we're doing exactly what we want in our flesh, that is the moment we are the most enslaved. It's not just that we don't want to glorify God by reflecting His image, though that is true. It is also that we cannot Apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. So Romans 6, 20 and 21, write that down to look up later. 
describes this saying, for, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You had thrown off the law. You didn't have to worry about what God thought about you, right? You're free. But then he's going to go on. Paul's going to say, there's, there's no, that's not freedom, really. He says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Listen, we may, we may think that we are free when we cast off the restraint of biblical morality, the restraint of what God would have to say in our lives, but we are really just enslaved, enslaved to the things that lead to death. And the truth is that we cannot break free of ourselves and no one else can free us by adding more chains of legalism to bind us. We need another. We need another to free us and we'll get to that in a moment. But first we have to see that what this isolation and bondage led to, uh, led to mutilation. Verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The demon has convinced this man to mutilate his body. And we have to understand, theologically speaking, God cares about our body. We are not just spirits hovering around, waiting to be set free. God loves and cares about our body. He created us as embodied souls. And he's given you a body so that you can carry out his plan that he has for you. He's given you a body to steward well in order to glorify him and experience his kingdom. And so to mutilate the body is to destroy part of what makes us human. That's where a fallen understanding of personhood under the domain of darkness can lead you. And this is something that still happens in the darkness today. And I just want to be so sensitive here. Because if my experience in the church tells me anything, there are people here today who are practicing self-harm. 17% of the population practices self-harm, according to the recoveryvillage.com, 17%. And it's particularly common in adolescents and college students. 45% of those who practice self-harm do so by cutting themselves, just like this man was doing among the tombs. And so if that's you, I, I want you to know that Jesus wants to free you and restore you from that. And you might think that you are worthless. You might be trying to control something that seems out of control. But Jesus does not see it that way. We're going to see the restoration and freedom that he wants to provide for you in a moment. This is not just cutting or self-harm. There are many other ways that people mutilate their bodies because we're allured by the temptations of the domain of darkness and the desires of our own sin nature, whether it's overeating or starving ourselves, whether it's giving into sexual temptation, not giving enough, getting enough sleep or lounging around slothfully, many people often harm their bodies at the enticement of sinful temptation. But it's not God who wants to harm your body. It's the domain of darkness. And the Lord created your body and he gave you the way that it will go best for you in his word and how to honor that body. And he loves you. 
our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God our Savior and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the answer to question one in the New City Catechism that we've been learning together during our intergenerational discipleship hour. And that's what it means. Body and soul. Body and soul. And so based just, based just on what we've seen so far, I think we can agree that this guy is not living the fullness of life that God intends for him. It's really no life at all. It's a living death. Now imagine that this man is one of the people that you encountered in the place that you envisioned at the beginning of the sermon. The grocery store. The restaurant. School. How are you going to respond? How are you going to respond to that guy? Do you feel helpless in that moment? Afraid? Concerned? Do you want to try to control him? Help him? Save him? Write him off? Kill him? This is the man who greeted Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that day. And so let's look at how Jesus responded. We learn from verse 8 that, that Jesus actually initiated the conversation by saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. That's what verse 8 is telling us. And somehow it was evident to Jesus as this man came bounding down the hill out of the tombs that he was demonized. And so the response is recorded first in verse 7. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, do not torment me. Notice the demon knows exactly who Jesus is. And this is just like Mark 1, where Jesus encountered a demon-possessed man in a synagogue, and, and, and that demon said exactly the same thing. What have you to do with us? In other words, what is your business here? What is your business with me? Now we know that the demon realizes that he is under the authority of Jesus. He's causing the man to, to bow, and he, he calls Jesus the Son of the Most High God. But, but at the same time, he hates God. He hates Jesus. He hates being under authority. And so the presence of Jesus is about to destroy and frustrate the fun that he has in destroying the man's life. And so when he says, what have you to do with us? He's, he's questioning the same thing as the demon in chapter 1, when the demon says, have you come to destroy us? In other words, are you going to throw us into the abyss that, that's described for us at the end of the book of Revelation? Are you going to throw us into the abyss before the appointed time at the end of all things? Notice Jesus doesn't even dignify with a response because it's a vain attempt by the demon to find fault in Jesus. Then, ironically, the demon asked Jesus to, to swear, swear you won't torment me. That's what it means to adjure. You would swear, swear you won't do it. I'm sure the demon has been happy to torment the man, but he doesn't want to be tormented by Jesus. Apparently, demons can dish it out, but they can't take it. Now, Jesus is not messing around here. He started the conversation. He's going to finish it pretty quickly. He asks the name of the demon. He does this to show the disciples and us, what are we really dealing with here? And so the demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Here's the first time that we hear a plural pronoun come out of the man's mouth. 
we, we now find that, that we've been seeing the effects not just of one demon, but a, a whole army, a whole mob of demons. The, the domain of darkness has been abnormally unleashed upon this guy in order to terrorize a whole community. But even a legion of demons is no match for Jesus, amen? And they are begging him to not be sent out of the country. The gospel writer Luke actually explains this for us. He says that they're begging him not to be sent into the abyss, the the pit where they're going to be bound during the millennial reign of Christ. So they don't want to be sent out of the world and into a place where they can't torment people anymore. And because it's not yet time for Jesus to enact their final judgment, he, he agrees, but we're going to see that, that he still controls the situation. They work out this deal for them to enter a herd of pigs, which that, that's going to serve a few functions in the story. Uh, first, it, it proves to the onlookers that, that there is in fact a legion of demons and they're n- no longer haunting this man. Uh, secondly, it's going to serve... To get, rid, to get the attention of more people as the herdsmen then go and enter the town and sell everybody, you got to know what this guy did to us. Three, it's going to effectively get rid of the demons without them tormenting more people, right? So Jesus comes up with a solution where they're not going to harm anybody else anymore. They're going to go throw themselves into the sea. And then four, most importantly, it serves the goal of actually restoring this man. Jesus cares about this guy. And so that's what happens. The demons enter the pigs, 2,000 of them. That shows you just how many were tormenting the man. And they run him right off the cliff and into the sea and drown him. In this final act of the demons, we see the end game for this man's life that they had for him as they tormented him. The end game was destruction. The domain of darkness leads people to death through isolation, bondage, mutilation, and destruction. Satan destroys people's lives for all eternity. And if your life ends without laying hold of the person and work of Jesus Christ through faith, your fate is the same as those pigs running headlong into a sea of destruction with the demons. That day those demons fled for the sea, but there is going to come a day when they will be bound and thrown into the abyss. And at the final judgment, that abyss will be thrown into the lake of fire, which burns forever and ever. And everyone who does not call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and experience his salvation will be thrown there with him. And so Jesus is the only hope of salvation given by God for those who are under the domain of darkness. Remember that everyone by nature from birth is dead in their sin. And so it's not just the, the crazy demoniac running, up, running around the tombs. It's everyone who's following the course of this world, who's following the prince of the power of the air. What is made overt, what is made obvious in the demoniac is the underlying reality for everyone who remains apart from Christ. Isolation from God and others. Bondage to sin. Mutilation of the body and mind and destruction of the body and soul. Now real quickly, before we look at the work of Jesus, I want to call your attention to how the people in the town have previously responded to this man's insanity. First, according to verses 3 and 4, they tried to bind him with shackles and chains. 
And verse 4 says that this happened often. They, they tried multiple times. And so their, their efforts were to control him, to subdue him, to keep, that, keep him from affecting their lives. And isn't this what is done today by many medical interventions for psychotic people? Just numb them with medication. Just keep them from causing a disturbance and everything will be all right. And listen, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for medication or therapy when it can mercifully bring some relief for a person. Absolutely. But that's about all we have in our toolbox apart from Christ. Let's just treat the symptoms. And when the chains and shackles didn't work for these people, they, they sent them away to the tombs. If we can't control people, we write them off, don't we? How many people have been written off because we didn't know how to handle their issues? Now I'm not just thinking anymore about the mentally deranged. I'm thinking about addicts, and the sexually confused, or even the sexually deviant. I'm thinking about those who feel like they have to hide in shame because no one has pointed them to the one who can free them from their shame. And apart from the intervening grace of Jesus, chains and shackles and medications and therapies and rules and rituals are all we've got. But church, spirit-filled believer, I want you to see this morning that you have so much more to offer the lost and unbelieving of this world. You have Jesus. You have Jesus the same Jesus who cast those demons into pigs. The same Jesus who initiated the conversation with a crazy man that everyone else had written off. The, the same Jesus who restored life. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus, church. That's the Jesus who is here with us, who we are praising and adoring and Jesus restores people to new life. That's the second half of this passage. Jesus restores people to new life. That second point is so familiar to us, it just rolls right off the tongue, and I think sometimes we forget how powerful it really is. Allow the testimony in Mark to help you remember just how powerful the restoration of Jesus is. Jesus restores people to new life. In verse 14, the, the herdsmen have just watched their whole livelihood run off a cliff. Some of you feel that way with the gas prices lately. Watched my whole livelihood drive away in a car. And so they run away themselves, and they tell as many people as they can what happened. As a result, the whole countryside comes to see for themselves. And, and I'm sure everyone knew the demoniac in the tombs, right? Everybody knew about that guy. And so they want to see, is he really restored? What did they see upon their arrival? Verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. Jesus had restored this man's life. And here's what that means. He restores... Life by recovering our God-given identity. He recovers our God-given identity. Just feel the peacefulness in this moment. 
after what had just happened. The man is now sitting, not running around like a madman, not convulsing, not screaming, not cutting himself, just peacefully sitting there. He's clothed. He's clothed. And and Mark didn't mention this earlier, but Luke tells us that the man was naked this whole time. What was the first thing that Adam and Eve realized when they, they ate the fruit in the garden, right? They were naked. And the result of that realization was shame, right? But the demons had desensitized this guy to the point of that the public nudity was the norm. Does, does that sound familiar in any corners of our society? He had been naked, but, but now he's clothed. And Jesus, as the Lord clothed, I'm sorry, just as the Lord clothed Adam and Eve in the clothes of animal skins, so too Jesus clothed the formerly possessed man. And in Revelation, we see that Jesus clothes those who conquer in his name with white robes of his righteousness. Jesus clothes the shame of our nakedness. He is clothed and he is in his right mind. Under the dominion of demons, he he was not in his right mind. And through Jesus, he is restored to his right mind. This is what Jesus does for every person he saves. He gives them a new mind. Paul calls it the mind of Christ. It is a mindset that is seeing the world rightly. A mindset that can understand the wisdom and the ways of God. It is a mind that is no longer enslaved to sin, but bound to Christ. That is a right mind. Jesus has not just cast out a legion of demons. He has restored this man's God-given identity. There is not anyone who is too far gone for Jesus. There is no one who is too enslaved in the domain of darkness that Christ cannot save if they would only hear the good news, repent, and believe. The demons isolated him, they enslaved him, they mutilated his body, they destroyed his life, but Jesus restored it all. And he recovers our God-given identity that was corrupted by the fall. Now we might think that this is going to result in an immediate revival, right? All these people have come to witness this, they've heard about it, but the response is surprising. Look at verse 15 again. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Which direction is that fear going to take them? Is it going to take them toward Christ or away? And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. When Jesus restores people to new life, he exposes our desires and motivations. He exposes our desires and motivations. As it turns out, these people did not want this kind of solution to their demoniac problem. They had already gotten this to a manageable point. He, he lives out among the tombs. He's no longer a problem in town. Good enough for me. He's out of my hair. Not to mention that the solution Jesus came up with was rather costly to them. It cost some herdsmen 2,000 pigs. That's a hit to the local economy. And so what else might Jesus cost us? Answer? Everything. That's a price they're not willing to pay. 
The desires and the motivations of their heart are being exposed and it turns out there is no room for Jesus there. And so they beg Jesus to part from their country and their response serves to highlight the man's response, which is not quite so surprising. Mark uses the same word beg that the people did in verse 18 to describe the man's response in verse 19. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. That's not that surprising, right? This man has experienced the salvation of Jesus. He has experienced the restoration of his life. And the only thing he wants to do with that restored life is follow Jesus. That's the desire and motivation of a heart that has been restored. We only want to follow Jesus. Listen, not perfectly, but increasingly. Which desires are winning out in your heart? The desire to maintain the status quo? The desire to maintain your good enough solution to the problem of evil that you face? Or have you so experienced the life-restoring salvation of Jesus that you would do anything to follow Him? Now Jesus responds to this man in an interesting way. It's probably due to the fact that the man is a Gentile and it's not really time for Gentiles to start following Jesus quite so closely yet. That time is about to come. But look at verse 19. He did not permit him. He did not permit him. Jesus has a mission and he's got to finish that at the cross and in the empty tomb. It's just not time for this guy to follow. But he said to him, go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Jesus does not let him come, but unlike every other time in the book of Mark so far, he tells this man to go tell his friends about Jesus. So far, Jesus' orders have been to keep his identity a secret. And he's going to return to that MO when he returns to the Jewish area of Galilee. But in this Gentile region where he's not going to spend that much of his earthly ministry and where the confusion about the coming Messiah would not be very prevalent at this point, Jesus is like, yep, go tell. Go tell everyone. When Jesus restores people to new life, he commissions our evangelism. He commissions our evangelism. It was a natural response. Go and tell what the Lord has done. And so he went away and began to proclaim Jesus. You see, if we truly get a hold of what Jesus has done to save us, uh, uh, that we were apart from Christ, that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, if we truly get a hold of what we were apart from Christ and what Jesus has done to save us, and if we truly understand that those whom we encounter with, who are without Jesus are in that same place, then we will, will respond by telling others the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We will. You won't need a pastor to twist your arm. You won't need a guilt trip. You'll just tell. He is the answer to their deepest need. He is more powerful and more wise than the best psychiatrist. He is more powerful than the strongest drug. 
He, he produces more righteousness than the harshest law. He is more freeing than all of the ways we could try to free ourselves. And we who have experienced him must tell others about him. We must. We know nothing of the response of the people that this guy told other than the fact that they marveled. We do know that eventually the gospel would come to this place and churches would be planted there. And so I believe at the very least, this guy's testimony probably plants a seed to that end. But the point is, he told them about Jesus. We don't need to worry about the response, right? He told them about Jesus. That was what Jesus told him to do. And if Jesus has changed you, you must go and tell others what he has done so that they can worship him. Jesus is worthy of your testimony, and they are desperately needy to hear it. Even the most outspoken atheist, Penn Jillette, of the entertainment duo Penn and Teller, he says, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Tell your story of your encounter with Jesus and how he has changed your life. Tell the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. Make the gospel clear. Tell them that that Jesus broke the power of the domain of darkness by entering into darkness for them and for you. Tell them that he died on a cross because of your sin that earned your death and because of their sin that earns their death. Tell them that he conquered death by rising again so that, that you all could be restored to new life. Tell them what that looked like in your life and how freeing it is to live for him. Tell them about how you have a new identity and while you are still being perfected in that and you're still growing in him and you're not perfect and you realize that, tell them, tell them that life with Jesus is better and it is the only way possible. Tell them that you now have new desires and motivations. Tell them how you have a new mandate on life and a new purpose for living and the mission that he has given you. Don't make yourself sound perfect, but don't hesitate to tell them. This guy didn't all of a sudden become perfect, but he did become alive. So tell them these things. And call them to new life in Christ through repentance and faith. And listen, if you're here today and you're realizing, I'm still in the domain of darkness because I've never put my faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to know that you can be set free today. And you can be restored to new life today. And today, you can turn from your sin and you can renounce it and say, the domain of darkness has got nothing for me. But with Jesus, there's new life. So you can turn from your sin and you can trust Jesus. He has died to pay for your sin. Your sin deserves death. Your sin earns you death. But Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus rose again to conquer death so that you could have new life. So I'd invite you to talk to someone, anyone who is a follower of Jesus, maybe somebody that you came with, anybody that you've seen on stage today, any one of our leaders. So I want you to think back to the scene from the beginning of the sermon. 
those, those five to seven out of ten people who, who don't know Jesus? What, what steps can you take to move toward them? To approach them in the tombs where no one else would dare to go. To point them to Jesus who can free them from the domain of darkness and bring them into his marvelous light. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.